Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 tonight. Thanks for joining us after uh, what I hope was a great uh, Thanksgiving uh, break, holiday for you. I'm going to start with a story. In 2013, a Canadian man, Pierre Paul Thomas, received the gift of a lifetime, the gift of sight. He was born blind. He was born in Canada in the 1940s, didn't have access to good health care. Then in 2011, spending his entire life unable to see, he took a fall in his Montreal apartment. He fell down a flight of stairs and he fractured a couple bones in his face and required plastic surgery. But when he went to the doctor and the physician did some analysis, he realized that his condition that caused blindness was curable. He was born with a congenital condition. In addition, he had really bad cataracts. Together, they caused him to be blind. So in 2013, Thomas received sight for the first time at the age of 68. Can you imagine what that would be like? Spending the first 68 years of your life not being able to see? And then one day you wake up from surgery, you open your eyes, and you can see the world in color. It'd be incredible, wouldn't it? The same thing happens to us when we receive Christ. The eyes of our heart are enlightened and and we can see for the first time. It's the words of the famous slave trader turned pastor, Jonathan Newton. You know the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found blind, but now I see. Transferred from the domain of darkness in the kingdom of light. Or if you grew up on 1990s CCM, contemporary Christian music, like I did, maybe a more modern example would be DC Talk. I want to be in the light. Anybody know that song? You are in the light. Thank you. What did you say, Brian? Did you write it? I'm giving DC Talk the credit for that, but that's fine. When we become Christians, we're adopted into God's family. He removes the blinders from our eyes, and we can see spiritually for the first time, understanding the spiritual realities of our heart. But for each one of us, there are moments, there are days, maybe there's even weeks, where we want to go back to the old way of life. We want to go back to the blindness. It makes sense. It happens to me. Metaphorically, Imagine I, uh, I walk into the playroom at my house after our boys have had an afternoon of terror, and they rip out every toy in the playroom. And I walk in, and you know what I want to do, right? Turn off the light, close the door, and pretend that the F5 tornado did not go through my house. <laughs> but to address the problem, I need to turn the light on, right? See, sometimes it's easier for us spiritually to do the same thing, to turn the lights off to be ignorant, to be blind of the, maybe some of the desires that still exist in our heart, some of the darkness that might still be there, some of the temptations that are more frequent, more common than we'd like to admit. You know, it's easier just to turn off the light. 
But in our text, as we keep going in Ephesians 5 tonight, Paul doesn't let us do that. He doesn't let us turn off the light and turn a blind eye to the temptation toward darkness that we still might walk through. If we had to pick a theme word for the back half of Ephesians, what would it be? Well, there's a couple that that come to mind. One would be unity. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But one of the words that comes out over and over again in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the Greek word peripateo. It's translated as walk. Throughout the New Testament, it's a metaphor and analogy for our journey with Jesus, our spiritual walk. And Paul uses it over and over and over again in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. 4 verse 1, he says, walk, peripateo, walk worthy of your calling. And then in 5 verse 2, he says, peripateo, walk in love. And then in the text that precedes our text for tonight, he says, walk in the light. Look at Ephesians 5 starting in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that's good and right and true, and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Here's what Paul's saying. Life with Jesus, our walk with Jesus is life with the lights on. See, we were born like Thomas in a state of spiritual darkness, but if we know Christ, if his spirit is dwelling in us, then the light of the world lives in our hearts and we have to walk as children of the light. The fruit of the light, Paul says, is anything that's good and right and true But because we're children of the light, Paul says, don't go back to your old way of life. Don't go back to the darkness. Instead, turn the lights on and allow the light of Jesus to shine even into the darkest parts of our heart. Walk in the light. And that's the context, a very important context for our text that we're going to look at tonight. So I just want to read all of our text, uh, 15 through 21 in Ephesians chapter 5. He says this, Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as the unwise, but as wise. Okay, let me pause there. We have to understand the connection between the light darkness motif that we just read and verse 15. It doesn't seem obvious at a first pass, but it's there. You see the word then in the ESV? That's a lot bolder in the Greek text. It's more of a therefore than it comes across in the English text. But the more important word is the word look. It's an imperative, it's a command, it's blepite, which is a really fun word to say in the Greek text. But Paul is saying, watch out. In other words, open up your spiritual eyes and make sure that you know where you're walking. That's what he's saying. He's using that eye analogy in verse 15. Watch out, walk as the wise. There's our word again, peripateo, not as the unwise. Verse 16 making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." So Paul commands us to walk with wisdom. Walking with wisdom means that we walk with the lights on in our heart. 
So if you're taking notes tonight, here's our big idea. Our big idea is just this, walk with wisdom. It's our title right at the top of your handout. You don't even have to write it down. But notice Paul doesn't tell us to walk with knowledge. He tells us to walk with wisdom. Do you see that? Knowledge and wisdom are similar, but they're very different, aren't they? Someone can be incredibly intelligent. They can have remarkable knowledge, but zero wisdom. One scholar defined wisdom in this way. I love this definition. Wisdom is living life in God's world by God's rules. Wisdom isn't just knowing the Bible, but it's knowing how to apply it to our life and having the strength to follow through. What the foolish do is they put on an eye mask while walking through a minefield, hoping for the best. But the wise take off the eye mask and choose to walk in the light. The wisest way to walk is with the lights on. So in our text from verses 16 through 21, Paul gives us three ways, three ideas, three principles to lights on living in our spiritual lives. And the first one, uh, making the best use of our time. That's verse 16, because the days are evil. The Greek word literally means to buy out or to buy off. It's an idiom that's now been transferred to the English language called redeem the time. You heard anyone say that before? Make sure to redeem the time. Use your time well. We can't buy back time. Everyone wishes they could. We can't. But we can use our time well. We can use it efficiently. What Paul is saying is that our walk with wisdom, walking with the lights on, it's not a distracted walk. It's not a leisurely walk. It's a focused and intentional walk. Think of it this way. Back in 2017, I've told a couple stories from an Israel trip that I took with Pastor Jeff and a group from our church. We had a great time. Um, about 40 of us were there. And if you've ever been to Israel or other countries and you're traveling with a larger group, there's like this mob of 40 people walking through religious sites. Sometimes people are all wearing like the same hat and it just like screams tourist. It's really funny. Um, so what happens in a larger group, you're walking down the Via Della Rosa and one of my self-assigned jobs on the trip was I was the caboose. There's usually Pastor Jeff in front and then you have all these like type A people that are right there wanting to be right in the front. They're like, they're leading the way. Like, I see a couple of you nodding your head because that would be you. And, and then there's the type B people. And they're in the back and they kind of are looking at the flowers and there's a squirrel over here. And there was a couple on the trip. Don't go to our church. They live out of the area. And uh, that was them. And we're walking down the Via Della Rosa, which is the uh, way of the cross. It's right in Jerusalem. And there's vendors everywhere. And somebody screams out and says, you want some olive oil? Come, come buy this nativity scene or come buy the scarf. And I swear, every single vendor they stopped at. While the rest of the group was like 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards in front. And we're constantly saying, we've got to go. We've got to go. Everyone's waiting on us. We've got to go. That wasn't a focused walk. That was a distracted, leisurely walk. <laughs> See, I, I wonder how often we do the same thing in our journey with Jesus. That there are thousands of distractions. There are thousands of temptations, thousands of voices calling, asking for our attention. And instead of keeping our eyes focused on the prize, we look, to the left, to the right. Not bad things, good things. But they distract us. And we're not redeeming the time. It's Hebrews 12 too, isn't it? Looking to Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. See, our journey, our walk, life with the lights on is laser focused on the finish line, 
That's Jesus himself. So how do we do that? How do we redeem the time? How do we buy back the time? Well, I have two ideas. Here's the first. It'd probably do all or most of us some good to spend less time on social media. Social media is not bad, but it can become a distraction in a hurry. Because what social media does is it takes that blinder and it puts us right over our eyes. It distracts us from literally everything else going on around us, that we're focused so much on the here and the now and what's on our phone. Did you know that the average 19-year-old spends four and a half hours a day on social media? I probably don't need to convince you that's not a wise use of someone's time. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I'm in the clear. I'm not at four and a half hours a day. If that's your reaction, then you're missing the point. You don't need social media. I don't need social media. And if it's becoming a distraction, if it's taking your gaze off of Jesus, then it might be time for a break. And instead of just removing that or limiting that in your life, the next step would be, well, now what, what can I do? What do I do with that time that I just bought back? Well, it's time to study. It's time to dig into God's word. Maybe it means starting a theology study or taking an online course. My alma mater, uh, Cedarville University, has uh, four or five of their undergraduate Bible courses completely free that you can enroll in and take. It's called the Bible Minor Project. If you're looking to to study, to dive in, do something a little more formal, that would be an incredible way to do that. Another way to redeem the time would be to use our spiritual gifts. I think of One Way Club or G180 that meet here at our church on Wednesday nights. It's an incredible way to invest in the next generation. And it doesn't take four and a half hours a day. It doesn't even take four and a half hours a week. But it's a good way, an excellent way to redeem the time, to buy back the time. Those are just a couple ways that we can walk with the lights on. For Paul's next recommendation, uh, look at verse 17. He says this, Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul says, don't be unwise, don't be a fool, but work to discern what God wants. Find God's will. You ever prayed that before? God, what's your will? Should I take this job? God, what's your will? Should I move? Should I go to this college? Should I take this internship? Should I ask her out? Should I say yes when he asks me out? God, what's, what's your will? You ever prayed that before? It's a great prayer. Because we're submitting ourselves to the will, to the desire of what God wants for our life. But when you and I ask God's will, we ask for guidance, it's usually underneath the category of uh, a big life choice. Does that make sense? We're asking for direction. But when Paul, when the writers of scripture talk about God's will, I think they often mean something else. Instead of a big life choice, maybe a, another way to define it would be God's desire. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 10. I just read it a couple minutes ago. Look at what Paul writes and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
what pleases the Lord? How do we find out what pleases the Lord? It's pretty easy, isn't it? We've got the good book. We have Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, which outline God's expectations for us as members of the family. If we want to discern God's desire for our life, we go straight to Scripture. Sometimes we're so consumed by where God wants us to be that we forget who God wants us to be. I'm convinced that God cares more about who you are than where you are. So when we're asking those big life questions like, where should I go to college? Should I take this internship? Should I take this job? Should I move south? Should I stay north? What should I do? When we're asking those big questions, it would be wise to step back and say, am I living the way God wants me to live? Am I who God wants me to be? even before we ask those directional questions. And I believe that when we're living the way God wants us to live, then when we're walking in the light, then God provides remarkable freedom. Go to Eau Claire, go to La Crosse, study at either university. But regardless of the college that you choose, get involved in Campus Crusade. Make it a priority to grow in your faith. Find a local church. If you ask her out on a date, or if you say yes when he asks you out on that date, treat one another with holiness and respect. If you take that promotion, use the job as a means to an end to make the name of Jesus known. So that's our second principle tonight. The second way to lights on living is to discern God's desire. Discern God's desire. We can summarize his desire for us quite simply. That's living the way Jesus lived. I think if you and I asked the question, what would Jesus do more often in our life? We'd find God's will just a little bit quicker. Discerning his desire starts in scripture. Next, look at verse 18. Paul gives us another principle. He says this, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Wine stands in for any type of alcohol. So Paul's saying, don't become intoxicated. Don't become drunk with alcohol, but be filled by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to uncover the, the principle underneath the text so we can make sure to apply it in our life in the right way. So when someone becomes intoxicated, drunk with alcohol, what happens? They lose control. They lose the capacity to make wise, spirit-filled decisions. And Paul says that leads to a life of debauchery. That's not a very fun word. Maybe the best way to summarize it would be the way that the prodigal son lived. Being controlled by alcohol here contrasts being controlled by the spirit. So certainly the application for you and I isn't just alcohol. We could ask, what are other things that might control us that cause us to make unwise decisions? Well, the next most obvious would be other substances, other substances that alter our mind, that we lose control. That would apply. But what if we take it a step farther? 
Your job, does that control you? Your lust, does that control you? Your infatuation with another person, does that control you? Your desire to be liked and approved by friends, does, does that control you? The principle underneath the text is we can't give control of ourselves over to anything or anyone else besides the Holy Spirit. But Paul does mention alcohol specifically, so that does give us an opportunity to address one of the biggest controversies in Christian culture, and that is drinking. I went to a college where having a drink on campus, off campus, Christmas break, whenever, would risk putting a student on academic probation. The same college required faculty and staff to sign an agreement that they would never drink a drop of alcohol while they were employed by the university. My first job out of college was at a church that had a similar expectation for their employees. So I signed that agreement. I grew up in a home where I saw one parent model responsible drinking and another parent choose that they didn't want to drink alcohol. I saw extended family members ravaged by alcohol addiction. And I have friends and family, some of which are saying, yeah, I never want to drink anything. This is wrong for me. To others that are saying, no, this is, this is fine for me. And everything in between. What do we do? What's a, a biblical perspective on, on drinking? Well, I think uncovering what the Bible has to say about alcohol is kind of like peeling an onion. The first layer is easy. And then after that, things tend to get just a little bit more complicated. So let me start with the easy part, and then we'll get a little harder. Does that sound good? Okay. The Bible's first expectation is obvious, because it was in our text. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. The Bible does not allow drunkenness. If we give ourselves control over anything, including alcohol, to God, that's sin. Now, it is not a secret that we live in one of the drunkest cities in the drunkest state in our country. Drinking is so ingrained in the culture here, just is, that even over-consuming alcohol, even drunkenness in our area, in our state, it's just normal. This is what it is. It's what you do when you go off to college. But if we're going to take God's word at face value, which here always we do, then is it okay to get hammered on your 21st birthday? No. It's what God calls sin. Is it okay for us to overdrink at that party so much so that we need somebody to drive us home? No. God's word calls that sin. And it's not just Ephesians. It's other texts. Let me read one. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says this. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So God's word is clear. Don't be led astray by alcohol. Now, if I had to guess, 
just talking about alcohol brings some pain into some of your life. And I probably could put you into three categories. Just the mention of alcohol for some of you brings pain because that's a struggle today. And if you knew that this was the text you're going to be in tonight, you probably wouldn't have walked in the door. And if this is a struggle in your life, I just, I have a couple words of encouragement for you. First, greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. This does not need to be a struggle and addiction that defines your life. The enemy tries to get all of us to believe a lie that we can't overcome, that you're not strong enough to get rid of that addiction. See, the truth is you're not, but he is. Don't let that define your life. But you can't be secretive about it. You need to let somebody in. You need to ask for help. Find a small group leader, me, Brian, Bianca, someone that can walk along with you in that struggle. Don't do that alone. And alcohol addiction is often the symptom of a deeper root issue. So if you're struggling with alcohol, is there something else going on in your life? Are you lonely? Are you self-medicating? Is there some trauma that you haven't dealt with? See, those roots, they don't make sin excusable, but it's important to deal with the root and the symptom in conjunction with one another. Others of you tonight, just when I talk about alcohol, it's not a present struggle, but it was in the past. And this text hits close to home because there's this one time where you have too much to drink and you made a decision that you'll regret for the rest of your life. And the enemy tries to fire these arrows to say, you can't be forgiven for that. You need to carry guilt for that. If that's you tonight, you need to know that there's forgiveness and healing that comes through the gospel. You're not defined by your worst mistake. You're defined by what Christ has done for you at the cross. So don't carry that guilt in your backpack for something that's already been forgiven. Finally, the third category. Some of you, alcohol just brings pain, not because it's been a reality in your life, but because it's been a reality in someone else's life. And that a family member or friend, while they were under the influence of alcohol, they inflicted incredible pain in your life. And that is not fair. And if that's you, I'm so sorry. And if there's a, a sensitivity, a hesitance, even a distaste towards anything related to alcohol in your life, as a family, we get that. And we want to be there to support you in that. So I know just talking about alcohol, it can bring up pain on a couple of different levels. And like I said, the first layer of the onion's easy. After that, it gets complicated. See, if the Bible allows responsible drinking, which is the position that I hold, that's not the only boundary. I think the Bible gives us a couple other boundaries to consider with alcohol consumption. So, three other boundaries. First, don't break the law. Kind of sounds obvious, but I probably need to say it. 
Romans 13.1 makes it obvious that we are expected to submit to our governing authorities unless they are compelling us or coercing us into doing something that violates Scripture. This doesn't count. In our state, the legal drinking age is 21. So that means that if you're under the age of 21 and you obtain a fake ID so that you can go out drinking with your friends on the weekend, that's sin. We're expected to follow the, the guidelines of our governing authorities. Underneath the category of don't break the law, this is going to be really popular. I'm going to say it anyway. Obey your parents. And here's what I mean. There's a group of you that still live underneath your parents' roof. I don't have a problem with that. However, if you're still living at home, you're still at least to some extent bound by your parents' expectations. So if mom and dad say no alcohol in the house and you're living at home, please follow their rule. Don't break the law. The second is don't violate your conscience. Some of you are convicted in your heart that there's nothing wrong with alcohol. Others of you are convicted in your heart that for you, drinking alcohol is sinful. Alcohol consumption is a gray area, which means you and I can disagree. I can say, this is a, not a sin for me. You could say, this is a sin for me. That's not legalism. Legalism happens when someone says, yeah, drinking alcohol for me is a sin, and now I'm going to say for all of you that it's sinful. That's legalism. You know, gray area is someone saying in their own heart, their own life, for me, this is wrong. Don't violate your conscience. Romans 14, 23 is clear. When we violate our conscience, we're actually sinning. So if something for you is sinful, then don't, don't break your conscience. Now that might mean that someone's conscience um, is weak, but the, that someone's conscience is too easily wounded, but the solution is not exposure therapy. That's not the solution. The solution is spending more and more time soaking in Scripture and discerning God's desire for that area of your life. So don't break the law. Don't violate your conscience. And then number three. Oh, that, yeah, that was kind of underneath don't break the law. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, leave, it, we'll leave it underneath that one. Third, don't cause a brother or sister to stumble. Think of what Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 14. He says this. Uh, in verse 15. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Paul's specifically talking about food sacrifice to idols in Romans 14. I think in many ways, the principle applies to alcohol consumption. Compared to our relationships with one another as a family, alcohol is so not a big deal. There are so many freedoms that you and I have the ability to enjoy in our life that we have the opportunity to lay down for the sake of one another. Our relationships here are so much more important than something like alcohol. Maybe the best way I can illustrate is with a story. Um, story not about me, about my wife, Hannah. Before we got married, Hannah was living over in Minnesota. She was out to dinner one night with a group of friends, friends from church. And it was the week prior that she had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with one of the friends around the table. And that friend very privately confided in her that she'd been struggling with drinking. She'd been drinking too much. She'd been drinking too much all by herself. And it was a struggle nobody else knew about. 
But this group of friends was out to dinner, and one by one around the table, the friends were ordering alcohol. And then it got to this, this other friend. And Hannah knew what they were struggling with. She was the only one around the table. And after everyone else ordered alcohol, that friend did too. And if that's you, what do you do? I don't know. But here's what it taught Hannah and it taught me. Rarely do I know the story of everyone else around the table. And I wonder how much wisdom there is in saying, just to be safe, I don't need this today. This is one of those freedoms that we should be, we should be so fast to lay down for the sake of a brother or sister. If it's going to cause them to stumble, if it's going to cause them pain in our life, it is so not a big deal. So that concludes our family talk on alcohol. Thanks for listening. <laughs> because what Paul says at the back half of the verse, honestly, is so much more important. We want to focus on the be, not the don't. He says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. But what did he say? Be filled with the Spirit. Filled, it's the Greek word plerao. It's in the present tense. It's a continual filling. Theologically, you have to understand, there's a difference between the filling of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. When we become a Christian, when we cross over from the domain of darkness and the kingdom of light, we're dwelled by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity takes up residence in our heart. He is our, our seal, our, our permanent seal of approval. That's what we've been talking about. That's Ephesians 1. That's a permanent relationship. After we become a Christian, we are continually, we are repeatedly filled by the Spirit. In other words, we can have more or less of the Spirit's influence in our life. We can have more or less of the Spirit's control in our life. And that's our, our final principle tonight, be filled with the Spirit. Our third way to lights on living is to be filled with the Spirit. Well, it sounds nice, doesn't it? But how in the world do we do that? How are we filled by the Spirit? How do we increase the control of the Spirit in our life? Well, it might sound obvious, but step one is to ask. Father, fill me with your Spirit today. Father, increase the influence of your Spirit in my heart and in my life today. Father, I give you control. I give your Spirit control over my desires today. Fill me with your Spirit. Is that something you pray? If not, that simple prayer would be a great thing to add to your daily routine. Every morning when you're brushing your teeth, Father, fill me with your spirit today. It's a great thing to pray. Paul said in Colossians 3, let Christ, uh, no, that's not right. That's Ephesians 3. Colossians 3, Paul said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, when we t spend time in scripture soaking in God's word, we increase the influence of the spirit in our life. And then when we say no to the things that control us, whether that's alcohol or anything else that asks, begs for the control of our life, when we say no to those things, then we also increase the influence of the Spirit in our life. When we say no to the desires of our flesh, then we increase the control of the Spirit in our life. But then as Paul finishes our, our text for tonight, he gives us three things, three ways, three evidences that come in our life when 
we're filled when we're controlled by the Spirit. Look at verse 19. Do the rest of the text. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here we see three things, three evidences of the filling of the Spirit in our life. Singing, thanking, and submitting. Did you realize one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit filling us is congregational worship, is singing together? Did you realize that's actually a command in Scripture? It's not an option. That singing together is something God expects of us. Now, since I know that doing something out of obligation is not always the best motivation, maybe we can dig into the why. Why does God expect us to sing together? Because when we worship together through music, something something special happens. We are combining the power of the theology of the words that we sing with the emotion of music. We're combining our head and our heart. And doing that together as a family, something, something special happens. It's a gift. It's a gift from God for us to enjoy together. And when we put theological truths to music, I'm amazed at how quickly we can remember them. For example, if you were at church yesterday, I bet none of you, without looking at your notes, could tell me the two principles from our sermon yesterday. None of you could do that. But if I start singing, Christ is my firm foundation, the, you could all fill in the blank. Because when we put words to music, they stay right here. We also might forget that singing, congregational worship, Paul says in Ephesians 5, is not just vertical. It's not just between us and God. It's horizontal, that we are singing theological truths to one another, that we encourage one another by singing together. I love how much our young adult family loves to sing together. That's one of the reasons that we've added a song or two once a month before or after the message, because it does our hearts some good to sing together as a family. So that's the first evidence of being filled by the Spirit. And then the next is always giving thanks. It's a gratitude. <laughs> so it's funny, we just finished uh, a season of Thanksgiving, but I hope that attitude of gratitude follows us the other 51 weeks of the year. But did you notice how specific Paul is? He says, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not an obscure gratitude. This is specific. It's James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. We're not just saying thank you. We're thanking God for his specific and gracious gifts in our life. But often we're distracted. And it would do our hearts some good to do a little more intentional gratitude. But when I'm driving home tonight, and I stop at one of the 70 stoplights on Bridge Street between here and my house, what do I do? Pull out my phone. Am I going to win fantasy football this week? No, definitely not. <laughs> What's the score of the game? And I'm distracted. See, how much better would my time be served to start thinking about the things that I could thank God for and practicing intentional gratitude? See, that's redeeming the time. This is distracted. Do you see how social media can become a blinder right over our eyes? It prevents us from having those those moments with God, because I'm always 
reaching for my phone. See, it would do our hearts some good to practice intentional gratitude. That's evidence of being filled by the Spirit. And then finally, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. (laughs) We're really going to dive into this next week when we talk about marriage. Paul uses uh, this phrase kind of as the foundation of his whole next section. But even before we get to that, Paul is saying that we submit to one another. That because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, there's, there's a mutual submission within the family. It requires the humility to say, I can't do this by myself. Requiring the humility to say, I've got to depend on other people with different spiritual gifts. Realizing that we're part of the same team, pushing ahead to one goal. That requires mutual submission. Singing, thanking, and submitting. And when we intentionally practice those things, we're filled by the Spirit. Well, at the same time, those things are evidence of being filled by the Spirit. You see how that is a circle. Important things for us to put into practice in our life. Well, if we want to walk in the light, and if we want lights on living in our own hearts, Paul encourages us to do three things. Redeem the time, discern God's desire, and be filled with the Spirit. May we be a family that does all three. Let me pray. Father, for those of us here that know Christ, we thank you for turning that light switch on in our hearts, for transferring us over from the domain of darkness into your kingdom of light that we can see even though we are born blind. Father, if there is anyone here tonight that is still walking in darkness, may you turn the light on in their heart and may they decide to follow Jesus with their heart and with their life. Father, there's a lot of practical things in Ephesians, a lot of practical things in our text tonight. And help us to find one or two things just in our life uh, that we can apply as we walk faithfully with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.